Uh, a little while ago, my son Levi and I began supporting a particular English football team. Uh, we even bought ourselves uh, some jerseys. Uh, there's a little one that I bought for my, uh, my son as well. And uh, it's been fantastic because uh, our team has been winning. Uh, we've sat in front of the, the television uh, cheering our team on. Uh, there have been lots of you know, high fives whenever our team has scored, uh, lots of shouting and emotion, and uh, we've come away feeling uh, wonderful because our team continues to be victorious. Uh, but I want to ask you this morning, uh, how many of us feel like that about our Christian lives? Uh, how many of us feel like that about our Christian lives? I mean, uh, be honest, how many of us got up this morning uh, sort of punching the air, thinking uh, how wonderful it is we're, that we're on the winning side? Uh, how many of us feel victorious in our Bible reading and in our prayer life and in our relationship with others? Uh, I'm guessing that if you're anything like me, uh, you'll be feeling uh, less than victorious, quite often. Is that true? Uh, perhaps for some of us, we may even feel that we are on the losing side rather than on the winning side. And so I want to ask the question this morning, what does the victorious Christian life look like? What does it actually look like to live the victorious Christian life? Uh, well, we've been working our way through 1 John for the past few weeks, and uh, in our passage this morning, uh, I want you to notice that John gives us a poem. Did you recognise that? Uh, he kind of drops this poem in almost out of nowhere. But uh, I want to suggest to you that this little poem in 1 John is uh, basically not only a summary of the, the letter as a whole, but one of but gives to us one of the key themes of this letter, which is the theme of victory. Uh, you can see the poem there in chapter 2, verse 12. So if you have your Bibles in front of you, uh, turn with me to chapter 2, verse 12, and uh, you can see the poem there. Uh, John says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Uh, now, I want you to notice a few things about this poem. Firstly, uh, did you notice that John uses three different descriptions to address the people that he is writing to, to address the church that he is writing to. Uh, children, fathers, and young men. He says, I'm writing to you little children, I'm writing to you fathers, I'm writing to you young men. Uh, and then he repeats it once again. Uh, now, some people think that John here is addressing uh, three different uh, kinds of people in the church. Uh, some think that, you know, when he speaks about uh, children, he's speaking about uh, the immature people in the church. 
And when he speaks about young men, he's speaking about people who are growing in the church. And when he's speaking about fathers, he's speaking about people who are more mature in the faith. But uh, I don't think that's the case here, because if you read carefully, uh, you'll notice that actually all throughout the letter, John addresses the whole church as children. And so, for example, you can see it there in chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My little children. Uh, again, in chapter 2, verse 18, Children, this is the last hour. Or, or chapter 2, verse 28, And now little children abide in him, and so on and so forth. Uh, now, I think what John is doing here is he's addressing the whole church with three different descriptions. Uh, if I'm a Christian person... Well, I'm a child, aren't I? I'm a dependent child on my Father in heaven. If I'm a Christian person, well, I'm sort of like a father because uh, I love and protect other people. If I'm a Christian person, I'm a young man because uh, in Christ Jesus, I am strong. And so he's addressing the whole church. Uh, uh, Secondly, did you notice that something changes halfway through the poem. And uh, I know it's an early morning, but I wonder whether you can just turn to the person sitting next to you and uh, see if you can work out what changes halfway through the poem. I'll give you one minute just to, just to have a think about that with your neighbour. What changes halfway through the poem? Okay, that's enough time. What, what changes uh, halfway through the poem? Does anyone want to... Uh, take a stab. Thank you, Elsie. Yeah, did you notice that? Uh, In the first uh, uh, three sort of uh, lines, um, he uses the present tense, uh, I am writing to you, I am writing to you, I am writing to you, and then he changes the tense. Uh, it's, it's very clear in, in, in the original language, but the English translators have changed uh, the, the, the form to I write to you rather than I am writing to you. I write to you, I write to you. And so why would John do this? Why would John change the tense uh, halfway through this poem? Well, I think it's because the first half of the poem is actually a summary of the first part of the, of the letter, and the second part of the poem is actually a summary of the second part of the letter, which is the entire section after the poem. And uh, you can see this quite clearly, I think. Uh, if you have a look at the first half of the poem, uh, notice there in verse 12, John says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven. Uh, What did we see last week in the passage that Luke uh, preached from? Well, if you remember, we saw John talking about the forgiveness of sins in the Lord Jesus. Now, come back with me to the poem. The next line says, I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Uh, What's the theme of today's passage? Uh, in chapter 2, verse 3 to 11, well, it's all about what it means to know God. 
And you can see that, uh, that in chapter 2, verse 3. Chapter 2, verse 3. And by this, uh, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And finally, if you come back to the poem, the next line in verse 13 says, I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And so the entire reason why John writes this letter to the church is so that they might have reassurance that they have the victory in the Lord Jesus. They are on the winning side. It's a wonderful little poem, I think. It sort of captures very neatly uh, what 1 John is about. Uh, Well, friends, let's turn to the beginning of our passage this morning as John reassures the church that they are the ones who know God. And uh, let's pick it up from chapter 2, verse 3. So if you have your Bibles, uh, chapter 2, verse 3. John says, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Uh, It's an audacious claim, don't you think? It's an audacious claim to, to know God, to say that I know God. I mean, how can I claim to know God? How how can a little speck of dust in a little corner of the universe claim to know the one who has created everything in this universe? We're so used to claiming to know God that sometimes we forget what an audacious claim that actually is. Uh, I've heard it said that it's a bit like a cockroach claiming to know the President of the United States. In fact, it's such a bold claim that it almost sounds arrogant, don't you think, to say, uh, I know God. That's why I think a lot of people like to think of God as a bit of a mystery. Uh, It sounds much more humble to say that God is unknowable. But what John tells us here is that Christians can genuinely claim to know God. Notice in verse 4 that he doesn't say that the one who claims to know God is a liar. But what does he say? He says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. In other words, it is not the claim to know God that is defective but it is a claim to know God, but for that not to be reflected in the life of a person that is defective. It is hypocrisy, and God can see through the lies. Uh, When I was in university, uh, I spent a year studying economics. Uh, It was the most uh, tedious year of my life. Um, But in particular, I studied a man by the name of John Maynard Keynes. Has anyone heard of Keynes before? A few of us? Yep. 
Uh, he was the one who predicted in 1930 that we would all be working a 15-hour week uh, now and we'd be spending uh, most of our time in leisure. Um, and so he got some things wrong, didn't he? Um, but Keynes is considered one of the greatest economists in modern times, and so I studied his life, I studied his theories, I could even reproduce some of the graphs that he, that he uh, formulated. And uh, at the end of the year, I uh, answered some questions about him, and I passed an exam. But I've got to say, knowing Keynes made absolutely no difference whatsoever in my life. I knew stuff about him, but I did not know him. But you see, knowing God cannot be like that, can it? You can actually know lots of stuff about God, but not actually know him. You can be full of right theology, but not really know God at all. You know, some atheists know more about the God of the Bible than many Christians. And yet they can't claim to know God, can they? Who is the one who knows God? Well, John says, it's the one who keeps his commandments. It's the one who walks closely with God. It's the one who trusts him and the one who desires to serve him and is eager to put into practice the things that he says. Now, friends, how do you and I know God? How do you and I know God? Now, what kind of a difference does knowing God make to your life? and to my life. Does it make any difference when we meet our colleagues at work on Monday morning, this claim to know God? And what are the things that you and I have learned recently in God's word that we are wrestling with because we are eager to do what God says? It's so easy to keep up Christian appearances but still be disobedient to God's commandments, isn't it? Now, I don't think what John is saying is that we will perfectly obey God's commandments here. Uh, he's talking here not about perfection, but rather a consistent desire and practice of obeying God's word so that when we say we know God, it is more than lip service because it actually affects the way that we live. Is that you? Is that me? But uh, what John is talking about, uh, sorry, what is John talking about when he says that the one who knows God will keep his commandments? Uh, what commandments is he talking about here? Uh, is he talking about the Ten Commandments, perhaps? Or is he talking about the commandments of Jesus? Uh, well, if you come forward with me, uh, just grab your Bibles again and turn forward with me to chapter 3, verse 23, uh, I think that John gives us a clue. Uh, John, uh, sorry, 1 John, chapter 3, verse 23, he says, And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another 
just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom God has given us. You see, uh, there are two related commandments here, isn't there? Uh, Firstly, believe in the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Now, what this means is uh, a total commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is to be the, 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 the Christ, the King, the Lord of our lives. But secondly, love one another. Love all people as you have opportunity, but in particular, love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, Now, friends, I think this is very important because uh, what God says here is that you cannot separate a love for God and a love for his people. They belong together. It's impossible to claim to love God and then not want to have very much to do with his people. It's impossible to claim to love God, but then live selfishly and not be committed to his people, to to love them and serve them and, and help to build them up. The one who claims to be a Christian, but only comes to church, you know, when they feel like it or when it's convenient, is not really being obedient to God's commandments. But notice that this commandment to love is both an old command and a new command. And you can see it there in chapter 2, verse 7. It's an old command as well as a new command. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 7. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is shining. You see, this commandment to love others uh, is actually an old commandment. Uh, The church that John is writing to would have been taught from the very beginning of their Christian lives that being a Christian means to love God and love others around them and in particular, their brothers and sisters. Uh, In fact, if you remember, the twin commandment to love God and love neighbour is even older than that because it's there in the Old Testament. Uh, In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your soul. And in Leviticus 19, uh, which uh, we read earlier, God says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. You see, this is a summary of the whole Old Testament law. For it is impossible to love your neighbour as yourself and then break the other commandments. It's impossible to love someone, isn't it? And then to turn around and murder them, for example. It's impossible to love someone and then steal from them. It's impossible to love someone and then uh, commit adultery with somebody else's wife. But notice, friends, that John says 
that it is also a new commandment. What does he mean when he says that this old commandment is actually a new commandment? Well, if you flip back with me to the Gospel of John, uh, come back with me to John chapter 13, uh, verse 34. Uh, Do you remember that Jesus, on the night before he dies, uh, gives a commandment to his disciples? And uh, listen to what he says, uh, John chapter 13, verse 34. He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, and you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In what sense is Jesus' command here a new one? Uh, I don't know whether you remember having your first cup of real coffee. Um, Some of you might remember. Uh, I still remember when I had had my first real cup of coffee. Uh, Up until that point, uh, I was drinking International Roast, um, Nescafe Blend 23. Uh, It tasted like muddy water. Uh, But then somebody uh, brought me to a cafe and uh, brought me a, a mug of... Uh, you know, flat white. And uh, I've got to say, uh, it was something completely new. (laughs) Uh, I mean, it was still coffee. It was still brown. (laughs) Uh, It still was made from coffee beans. Um, But everything was better. (laughs) The the taste was better. The aroma was better. Uh, Everything about this coffee was better so that I could genuinely say, this is something new. You see, something can be new in time, but something can actually be new because it is new in quality, can't it? And what I think God is saying here is that those who know God will love with a new kind of quality. What kind of quality? Well, Jesus says to his disciples in John's Gospel that they are to love like he has loved them. Uh, In our passage this morning, uh, in chapter 2, verse 6, the the Christians that John is writing to are to walk in the same way that Jesus walked. How did Jesus love? Well, he didn't just love his friends, did he? He actually loved his enemies. He didn't just love those who were on the inside. He loved those who were on the outside. He didn't just love those who loved him back, but he loved those who spat on him, reviled him, and eventually crucified him on a cross. It's an extraordinary kind of love, the love of Jesus. And he says, our love is to be modelled on that. Uh, Friends, uh, I want you to think about church for a moment. Uh, Do you come to church to just love your friends? 
Uh, do you only sit with your friends, for example? Do you only ever speak with your friends and spend time with your friends? I mean, don't get me wrong. Um, I think one of the great blessings of being part of a church family is that we have great friends. But even the pagans love their friends. Now, what God is talking about here is a new quality of love. Do you love like the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you walk like he walked? Do we look for the one who is sitting alone and go and sit next to them at church? Do we love the newcomer who comes to church for the first time and, uh, you know, they're feeling a little bit awkward because they don't really know anyone here? Do you love that awkward person that others tend to stay away from? Is that the sort of love that we love with? Do you love people with a different skin colour to you? Now, I wonder what it would mean for us to love like this. What would it look like if we all did this? Now, what, would, what would our Sunday meetings look like? What would our morning teas look like? What would our weeks look like? Now, now friends, I know that sometimes uh, people feel that no one loves them at church. Uh, I wonder whether you've ever felt like that before. Uh, perhaps uh, some of us are, are feeling like that uh, at the moment. And uh, I'm genuinely sorry that you feel that way. Uh, I don't think um, we should be feeling that way uh, in a church. But if that is you, I just want to say to you that the question to ask is not why aren't others loving me? But the question here is, if I claim to know God, how can I love others? How can I be there for others? What are some of the things that I can do in order to welcome others and to uh, speak with others and to help others to grow in their knowledge of Christ? Now, what steps have you taken to be more a part of the people here, your brothers and sisters. For the one who knows God is the one who keeps his commandment to love others. Well, friends, uh, what does the victorious Christian life look like? Uh, does it look like supporting your football team when it's winning? Uh, lots of punching the air and jubilant shouting. Uh, well, I think that what God teaches us here is that the victorious Christian life uh, is not really like that. But rather, the Christian life is really all about looking to Jesus and relying on him. Uh, last week, we saw that the Christian life is not about sinless perfection, but humble confession, looking to Jesus, the one who was victorious on the cross and is able to forgive us. Uh, today we've seen that the Christian life is not about perfection. Our lives will always be imperfect because we live in a time when the darkness is fading, but the light is already shining and will one day 